Listener Production. Alcoholics call it a moment of clarity. I just woke up and went, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I can't, I can't ever do that again. And it was just super clear to me that I was no longer able to choose whether or not that happened. And it starts when I have the first drink. So I'm just going to not have the first drink. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep with our most loved personalities. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but in this time of social isolation and Instagram, I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we all love and admire. I always cry and have a laugh, so you can expect some tears and laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. In this episode, I speak with media personality Osher Ginsberg. You know him as the face of the biggest TV shows over the past 20 years, such as Australian Idol, The Bachelor and its spin-offs, as well as The Masked Singer. But what you might not know because of Osher's polished performances is how dark life got for him. He was dealing with anxiety and addiction. At times, it was so bad, he wanted to die. I knew Osher from our Channel 10 days and I had no idea what he was going through. Osher, love chatting with you. Love is actually one of my favourite words at the moment. Now, I want to know about life for you. It's pretty good, isn't it, at the moment? Well, yeah, there's moments that are pretty good. You know, and that's, you generally want it to be more than 50% pretty good. I reckon if I can get anywhere between 55 to 60 pretty good, Life's amazing. And yet it's also important to understand that you can't have life is pretty good without life's pretty ordinary sometimes. And that is what life is. Life is you can't have joy without sadness. You can't have happiness without anger. You can't have love without loneliness. You you know, these things exist in, in balance with each other and you have to appreciate that. Yeah, it's not always going to be, you know, champagne, strawberries and balcony sex. Sometimes it's going to be arguments about the bills and where's, you know, did you take the bins out? And you know, <laughs> you know, and you can't expect those things to not happen. So, like, that's a long way to go, yeah, everything's amazing right now, Jess, but that's I don't want people to think that life is always incredible. No, life is, as the Buddhists would say, pain and suffering. And once you're in appreciation and acceptance of that, you can go, oh, this moment is a moment of, pain. This moment is a moment of suffering, but that's okay. It passes like every other moment and the good bit will be right around the corner. And just give yourself the opportunity to cope and know that you'll cope. Which I think is very much your message, but I can't let the notion of balcony sex pass by. What are you talking about? (laughs) Some buildings, Jessica, there's usually a sliding door that uh, allows you to go into the outside. And usually in some buildings, that sliding door is directly accessed by the bedroom. And occasionally you may want to take a moment of 
of intimate connection with your loved one <laughs> outdoors, but you don't want to, you know, go through the, oh, we've got to go downstairs, we've got to out the front door. No, 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 just zoop, slide the door. There you go. There's a vista oh, as well. I did ask the question, so I'm probably regretting asking that question. <laughs> Life's too short. Life's too short not to have balcony sex. I think it's very important. <laughs> well, life, you know what? You're absolutely right in the sense that life is too short not to embrace those moments of goodness because, as you had said, that it's not always going to be good. I have just recently finished your extraordinary book, Back After the Break, and that blew my mind. Your openness, your vulnerability, your rawness, it was, I read it, I reckon, in a night. I was still awake at sort of 4 a.m. It was phenomenal. How hard was it to write that book? It wasn't hard to be open and vulnerable because the I've got a news flash for anyone who's dreaming of becoming J.K. Rowling or George R.R. R. Martin or another multi-initialed author. Um, you release books in Australia, unless you're... Um, Barefoot investor, you're not releasing the book to make money. You're just releasing a book to get the message out there. All right. And so I only wanted to write the book to give back what was given to me. And what was given to me was along my journey, um, not only of sobriety, but also my journey of uh, through divorce and my journey of recovery and my journey of getting quite sick mentally and having a, a quite serious episodes of uh, mental illness and then getting better again. All along that journey, it was stories of others who had been through what I'd been through that gave me the hope that it wasn't always going to be this way. And all I was trying to do with the book and what I kept in my mind the whole time was, I'm just giving to another person what was given to me. Because I promise you, without those stories that I had heard at the, the darkest moments of whether it be trying to make it through sunset without opening a bottle or, um, you know, the, 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 the very difficult, you know, days and weeks after I got divorced or, you know, dealing with passive and active suicidal ideation, had I not heard stories of other people who'd gone, look, I know what it is. And was it a bit like this? Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. It's not always going to be like this. It's going to get better. That's where I stood when I wrote the book. I mean, I sat down, but that's where I, that's where I, I, I placed myself when I wrote the book. And so if I kept coming back to that, it was not a problem at all to be authentic and it was not a problem at all to be open. It is a gift to so many people because you are so open about it. It then reassures other people, hey, I'm not the only one or there is a way through it. Because as I was reading the book, I was thinking about how when I first sort of knew you, met you, you were hosting Australian Idol with Matho and I was reading the news for Channel 10. And I remember I used to sort of look at the two of you in wonder and think, oh, you know, they're the cool kids on the block. They've got it all together. But then reading the book and getting a sense of where your head was at during that time, that, you know, you you didn't enjoy that at all, did you? You didn't well, appreciate it at the time. I thought I, I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do around, like, if I'm enjoying it, this is what I should do with it. Um which was, you know, take, drink, smoke, sniff, everything that was put in front of me um, because that's what I thought you're supposed to do when you're in those situations. And um, I'm sorry to say that all the movies and the songs weren't really right. They kind of lied to me. All that happened was like, okay, well, now I'm just high and I still feel ordinary about myself, or now I'm just drunk and I still feel ordinary about myself, or, you know, 
yeah, whatever it is, you name it, in the spot that I was trying to fill the gap with, um, yeah, none of it really worked. Like despite copious amounts of of trying, uh, like I know what's, you know, one thing that'll make this better, more gambling. That's, yeah, I know what the problem is. I wasn't putting 10 bucks on, I'll put 50 bucks on. I'll put a hundred bucks on. I know, I'll, I'll put a thousand bucks on. Um, no, when it was all done, I still felt the same oh, on the inside. And, you know, it's unfortunately, at the time I thought it was some special snowflake, Jessica, but, you know, the, the truth is, you know, it's a, it's a story that I've read in that many books of my favourite musicians and actors. And it's like, it's the same thing. It's like, crikey, you know. All I ended up doing was ending up exactly the same way as all those books ended up. Because that's uh, the thing you talk about in the book about how it went from being fun, enjoyable, what you do, to actually totally out of control and people around you being, what, what is he doing? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I also, and I also didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know. I, it was a confluence of things and that I had, I ended up getting diagnosed with social anxiety, um, which may be a bit ironic for people to understand. Why would a person who's afraid of people or social phobia, why would a person who's afraid of people go and get a job in television where they are in front of people all the time? And basically, you know, I'm not alone in this. I've spoken with other people who have a job in my particular field or stand-up comedians. There's one or two that I've spoken to that understand it, that what is anxiety? What is social anxiety? Is, is it a fear of, um, you know, lack of control in a social situation, particularly what other people might be thinking about me? But if I'm on live national television, I am completely in control of the situation. I'm completely in control, hopefully, of what you're thinking about me because I am dictating exactly what is going on. Into some cases, certainly with the Channel V stuff, the camera angles, all right? I, and the, I, I was programming the music for a while there at Channel V. Like, so like, and next song you're going to hear, I'm in control of. So oh, it gave me peace and tranquility. And then when that ended, I then have to go and try and do my groceries with people running up to me, grabbing my hair, trying to pull it off my head, thinking it was a wig, which is really weird. Regardless, when you've got social anxiety and you don't know what to do with that kind of interaction with a stranger, it's even worse. And it would happen quite a lot. So, you know, a way to, I guess, dull myself from that just involved, I'll just neck a couple of beers before I go out the front door and like all that stuff would still happen. But I just, I would drink, I don't know how much. Enough so I just didn't really give that much of a shit. <laughs> well, and the thing is then you self-medicate to try and get yeah. the anxiety away, but then it, it's this awful vicious cycle. It just makes it worse and worse because you um, have had anxiety since you were little. Reading in, the, in your book, there are moments where you talk about it as a small boy. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a – it was in writing the book, I guess, that I had – I found a lot more empathy for little kids that I – known um, like sons and daughters of friends of mine and gone, oh, right, that's what's going on with that kid. I just hadn't identified it in myself at that point. But in writing in writing in the book and I was speaking with other people about their experiences when they were young people and, yeah, I don't think I really spoke with anybody else that was popped off to a psychiatrist at the age of five or, you know, was having full-blown panic attacks at, you know, the age of 11. But that's, you know, that's the, that's what I got. That's what my brain was doing. That's how I was responding to those stimuli. And that's, you know, I at the time didn't know how to deal with it. So when alcohol showed up, it was like, oh, finally, oh, this horrible, terrifying feelings going away. 
the problem is that alcohol, in my opinion, Jessica, uh, alcohol is a, it's a widely available, socially acceptable, self-administered depressant that no one has to know how much you're taking. The problem is eventually the dosage that you need to get the desired effect becomes completely unmanageable and the side effects of that drug start to destroy your life. And that's exactly what happened to me. Um, people may relate to this, certainly going through the lockdowns we've been through over the last 18 months or so. Oh, a couple of wines will be fine. I've, oh, it's been hard, kids at home, la, 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 la. Before you know it, Jimmy Brings is knocking on your door for the second time that night. You're like, Jesus Christ. No one has to know though. I'm home by myself, you know? And then before you know it, you're like, oh, far out. I've fallen backwards into a problem. I'm too smart for this. <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. You're not alone. And there's plenty of help out there, but I've been in sobriety circles for too long, 11 a bit years now. I've heard too many stories. It's just, it eventually will come to get you. There's a point that you pass where you're no longer able to control it. Um, and that's it. And I, a lot of, some people don't understand exactly what I'm talking about sometimes, Jessica. So I refer to it in that, um, thankfully, we're all very aware of how dangerous anaphylactic peanut allergies are, right? To the point where, you know, if your kid's at childcare, we're a no, no nuts school. All right, no nuts. And you would never even think to expose a child who's allergic to peanuts to even the tiniest bit of peanut, right? Because something's going to take control of their body that they cannot choose to stop and it is going to put their life in danger. Similarly, if I even have the smallest amount of alcohol, it sets off a reaction in my body that changes my personality, changes what I think is right and wrong, changes my value system, changes, uh, you know, so much about me that I, I have no control over. It, it's easy for someone without an alcohol problem to go, well, just don't do that. It's like, that's you. I'm me. I am like one of our kids is a peanut allergy, right? I'll eat peanut butter in front of her all day long, but she can't touch it because she'll get very, very ill. So you got, if you're fine with alcohol, you go right ahead. Don't worry about me. You, knock yourself out. However, understand that there's people in this world that something's up, something's just different. And if they get exposed to that level, that alcohol, they they will undergo a personality shift and their, you know, value system changes and they start doing and saying things that you don't expect and the rationality creeps in. And so, yeah, I'm... That, Powerless that's I, over alcohol. That's the thing, isn't it? And because yeah. you, this particular quote that I thought sort of said it very well in your book, that you, the amount you needed to drink to feel safe, accepted, or even normal was now impossible to maintain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it impossible to maintain because it was destroying my, my body, my relationships, my career. I could see uh, it's, like I said, and like I'm, I'm not a special snowflake. Um, there's even names for what I, I went through. Um, alcoholics call it a moment of clarity in this horrendous uh, drinking binge that I was on. There was this wild moment. You may have experienced it if you're listening. You may have experienced it between wretches when you're hugging a toilet at some point um, where you go, what have I done? And then you're back in there. You know, if it's four in the morning and you've done and drunk and done everything and everyone and, you know, you're full of shame and horror at the mess you've made, you may have a moment and then you go back into the stupor. So similarly, I had this moment where I'm like, oh man, I can't stop this. And that was it. Thankfully, I got really lucky, Jess. A switch flicked in my head and I realized I can't, I can't not do that. Like every time 
the smallest amount of alcohol I started drinking, no matter what, within a couple of hours, it would end up there. And there was nothing that I could do to change it. It would happen every time, every single time. And I'm like, this is no longer me making the choices. This is no longer me deciding how much I want to drink, when I want to drink, what it is I want to do with my day. That stuff is all to the wayside. It's only about when can I drink? Who can, you know, who can I call to justify drinking with? How can I, I don't know if I've got to travel somewhere. How can I make sure that I, I get there or don't have to drive so I can drink? Like everything started becoming around playing drinking. And like the thing about if you're drinking or using or, or whatever other thing it is, like gambling or shopping or whatever it is, you get to a point where you start to put in so much effort to satisfy your urge, whether it be hiding all the the online shopping purchases or, you know, lying about where you're going so you can sit in the pokey room or, or whatever, like the amount of effort and hustle that it takes to allow your addiction to maintain. I promise you to stay clean, it takes about a half that effort. All right. So if you put half as much effort into staying clean as you used to do from hustling and lying and covering your ass to get away with the shopping or the drinking or the sex or whatever it is or the drugs or whatever, you'll be fine. Trust me, you've got it in you. It's not that hard. That moment of clarity that you talk about, what was that for you? Was that when you were in New York after a particular dinner? Yeah, yeah, I just I just woke up and went, that's it. I'm I'm done. I can't I can't ever do that again. And it was it was just super clear to me that I was no longer able to choose whether or not that happened. When I was younger, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go out and get slaughtered tonight. Right? I, I never kind of accidentally got completely carpeted. But more and more it would start to happen. And then the blackouts became earlier and earlier in the night. And I would, you know, I had lost count of the last day I hadn't had a drink. Couldn't have told you. Years probably. Um, by that point, and I honestly, I, I, I just, I just realised that oh, this whether or not I want to do this, this is happening every time, and it starts when I have the first drink. So I'm just going to not have the first drink. But again, like you asked me, why did I write the book, or was it hard to write the book? I had already met somebody who had what I wanted. There's a, a fellowship of men and women who. Um, count days and take steps. There's more than 11, there's less than 13. I'm not supposed to talk about it, but you can figure it out. Anyway, um, I met somebody who was in this fellowship and he was a fashion photographer and he was incredibly talented and beautiful to look at and gorgeous and the life of the party. And he was sober. And I'm like, how do you, how do you be that guy at this party? How do you, and this is a fancy party, right? Uh, like Tommy Hilfiger was there. Like, I'm like, wow, how do, how do you in this room with all these people and be clean and sober and still be telling a great story and having a great time and meeting strangers. How do you do that? Because if you figured it out, that means someone's taught you how to do it. So this is something I could learn how to do. So I called him up. I said, hey, man, I need help. And he said, all right, come to a meeting with me. And off we went. <laughs> and that was crikey. March 2010. Yeah. And you've been sober since then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's been a few mistakes here and there. Like sometimes in a crowded bar, someone will go and order two vodka sodas and a soda 
and they'll come back and they'll give me the wrong one. And, you know, I'll, I'll take a sip and oh, I'll spit it back out, you know, and like, I've been really lucky that I haven't, there's been like, I think it's happened twice in my life, something very, very similar to that. Um, and only until recently was I even able to drink kombucha because some of the homemade kombuchas that you get at a cafe or whatever, they have a little too much alcohol in them. I can't even drink a zero strength beer because it's like that peanut thing again. You know, the the tiniest amount of fermentation is enough to change my brain over and I, I dislike that feeling greatly. Because you have enormous insight and, again, touching back on your book, Back After the Break, where you, you talk about the stopping drinking, becoming sober, and I, to me reading that, I think, oh, phew, that's it now, you're all through it. But then you experience <laughs> psychosis. Yeah. And that's another whole thing. For people who don't know what psychosis is, can you explain that? <laughs> it was explained to me like this. Like neurosis is the pain you feel when what you expected out of a situation doesn't happen. Like it's like, but I wanted this to happen and reality is showing you something very different. For example, I wanted to still be with my wife or husband and now you're divorced. That pain you feel inside you, that's a neurosis, all right? Or or whatever it is, I've lost my job or I've, I've lost a, a, a loved one. That's, that's neurosis. And that pain is real and it's great, but it's the reality of the world and your um, perception of that reality are at odds with each other and that pain is the gap between them, right? And my psychologist at the time told me that psychosis is when that pain gets so great in order to protect you from that pain, the brain just reinterprets reality. And you start to see things that aren't there and hear things that aren't there and have a very hard time perceiving situations as to what they are. And you were seeing, though, sort of it was the end of the world, wasn't it? You were imagining that there was terrible flooding and disasters and... Was those sorts of scenarios yeah, being played was, out? It was a, an extreme form of, of climate anxiety. And, and Jessica, I really do wish that I had this fear of geese or scaffolding or, or something like <laughs> Yes. Okay. <laughs> something less dire. <laughs> or, or something. And real. That, or, or pigeons, mm. you know, something that was easy for me to go, oh, I know I have this. I have this horrendous fear of, of pigeons and I have overwhelming horror when I hear a pigeon's wings flapping. Like it's kind of easy to go, it's ridiculous, I know that, but I can't stop my body from feeling this way. Unfortunately, the thing that I had intense uh, anxiety and have ended up having psychosis episodes over, uh, which psychosis manifesting as paranoid delusions, is something that is actually quite real and quite frightening and truly terrifying. And to, to be with the actual horror of what we are facing as a community is terrifying. I mean, I still have to do my exposure therapy every day and exposure therapy sucks, all right? But it's better than dealing with the pain. What is exposure therapy? Exposure therapy is being with... Uh, and being willing to be with how uncomfortable the thing you're worried about is making you. Because it sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. The more you run away from or avoid the thing that bothers you, the worse it is when you do get encountered by it. And it just, it can get really, really bad. And I had been in the really, really bad. So I, 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 
part of my maintenance of my body and my brain is I do exposure therapy every day. And that my, my kind of go-to rule is that I look at the news in the mornings and if I see an article that frightens me, I click on it. And I spend the time and I, and I read it and all the way to the end. And then I'm just with how uncomfortable it makes my body. And I'm with the feelings of my body. I'm willing, I'm with the horror in my stomach. I'm, I'm with the, the tragedy and the pain of, of my children. And I'm, I'm with the, the, the anguish at our leaders not understanding or wanting to move on this incredible emergency that we're all in. And then I go and play Play-Doh with a toddler. <laughs> really hard but that's that's my only option you know i jessica i can't do anything about the permafrost in russia melting i cannot but i have to be with how terrifying it is and then hold that and be willing to be with how uncomfortable it is and then go okay what's the next thing i can do can i stop the permafrost from melting no can i do anything about the amount of carbon that is currently being released in the atmosphere no can i do anything to influence my government outside of voting every couple of years no. What is it that I can do right now? I can go and play Play-Doh with a toddler. And Ooh. it makes you present, though, those sorts of things, doesn't it? It sort of brings you back to earth and back in that moment. And and also... It's hard. It's of hard. course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> it's, everything is hard. And I think everything that is actually good is very hard to do, really. Yeah. You have to put the work in for it yeah. to then sort of pay off. And and for you, part of that work has also been medication. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a part, because my mum's my got bipolar disorder, so I've sort of seen a lot over the years with what medication has meant for her, but also some of the side effects and those sorts of things and, and the unfairness of those side effects because with a lot of those antipsychotics, they put on weight. And I oh, think yeah. that is not fair. <laughs> You're no, dealing with enough. Why then have this nonsense thrown on top? Because, yeah. you know, that was what you had to deal with and then you're on oh, the telly as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like it's, it's, it was nice to not be crazy, but after a while you're like, because it destroys your testosterone as well. Um, so after a while I'm like, <sighs> I like not being so crazy, but being fat and frigid is not that much fun. And so you go back to your doctor and go, hey, what do you reckon we can do here? And I remember my doctor saying, look, man, I could make all the voices. I could make it all stop tomorrow, but you would gain 30 kilos. But it's, it's up to you. What do you want? And I'm like, I've got to go back to work, do this job. And I need to be in a suit on telly a couple months a week. What do you reckon we can do? And he said, oh, okay, we can try knocking things back. It's going to be rough. I'm like, okay. All right. So I was on as little as I could possibly get away with. Um but it's still, I was still putting on about a kilo a week, um, which is a, a difficult because I've chosen a job where my body is um, open to critique and um, that's my choice to have this career and that was, uh, that was quite difficult for a while there. And, of uh, course, and I know life isn't fair, but that's not fair. And something else that really struck me was you described a time, I think it was when you were hosting the second season of The Bachelor, and you say that if you could have got a logie for pretending to be interested in what you were talking about, when yeah. all you were really thinking about was suicide. Yeah. I mean, that reading yeah. that for me just stopped me in my tracks. It's true, though. I still wouldn't give me a logie, though. I don't think I'll ever win one. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you one. Oh, thanks. I don't know if I want one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, eventually the pain gets so great 
for me anyway, the pain got so great that my brain showed up and went, hey man, hey, I, I got a, I've got a solution. I got a, I figured it out. I figured out how we're going to make all this stop. I'm like, oh, you really? Yes. My brain's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you're talking, yeah, I know, but it would mean everything ended. But I don't, come on, man, it'd be great. You're not wrong, but I can't do that. It's like, okay, well, it's always here. And that's the thing. Like, it didn't show up as uh, terrifying or uncomfortable or awful thought. It showed up as the best idea I'd ever had. And in that moment, I was like, oh, man, this is, this means I'm really sick. Because if the idea of doing that is showing up as the best idea ever, then this is distorted. This is my brain is getting really messed up here. And, you know, it's something I would never, ever consider in my entire life. So it didn't make it go away, you know. Um, and I had to live with that for an, a long time. And look, you know, I'm not going to lie. Occasionally those thoughts do show up. And if they do, there's about a year ago or so around, yeah, about a year ago, we're obviously going, we're all going through a lot in Australia um, and elsewhere in the world. And I, I told Audrey straight away, I'm like, just so you know, like it's not the full thoughts, but I can hear them in the distance. I can hear them showing up. So I'm just letting you know. I'm going back to my psychiatrist and we're going to have a bit of a chat. <laughs> she's and like, Audrey, of course, is your beautiful wife. and yeah, the- she's Mum of um, Georgia and Wolfie, she's a glorious, as you describe her, Disney princess. She is. She truly is. She's a lovely human being. And, um, yeah, but the fact a- that you could say that to her, that these thoughts are coming back, and I think, you know, when I when I think about times when I've been low, when people I love have been low, my mum, that I think it takes incredible courage and strength to keep going. And people who haven't experienced that don't appreciate the level of just strength to hang on by your fingernails sometimes. That, you know, to deal with that battle in your head, I just yeah. think is something else, Osha. I really, and I think with what you do and how you describe what you go through helps so many people because when you're in the midst of it, you think it's just you. Oh, thank you, Jessica. And, and yeah, that's, I think... And that takes us back to the reason why I wanted to write the book because it was only other people's stories who had been where I'd been, who had told me, yeah, no, no, if you do these things, it won't be like this anymore and it can actually get better. Like I didn't believe them, but I'm like, well, if you're telling, if you seem to be okay and if you're telling me all I have to do is these things to get where you are, then I guess I'll do them because my ideas right now, I've, I've run out of ideas. I've like you have to be in acceptance that you can't think your way out of this kind of thing. And if you can't you, do it on your own, can you? That's no, the no. thing. You can't use a sick brain to think your way out of the problems of having a sick brain. It doesn't, it's like trying to bite your own teeth. It doesn't work. You actually need someone else's thinking to go, hey, I'm over here. I'm I'm over here without the panic and the fear. Um, did you ever think about maybe, you know, Seven cups of coffee might be a bit too much today. So maybe let's knock it down to about two. And have you been for a walk around the block? Okay, okay, we'll start for a walk around the block. Okay, let's go do that. And like maybe maybe not food bought from a drive-thru for a little while. Yeah, there we go. Let's start there. And, you know, you're like, okay, I'll listen to you. <laughs> well, one step at a time. Like sort of that program that you talk about, it is all about just one step. That's all we can do. It really is all we can do. And um, I've been... 
you know, one of the things that does get me through and I would recommend to anyone is like, look, if you can put your head on the pillow tonight without doing any harm to yourself or anybody else and you've done your best to leave the world around you just a little bit better than how it was this morning, then you've done it perfectly. So go to bed. Everything's fine. You've done, you've won life today because you're not trying to live next week, next month, next year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. All you're trying to do is today. All you got to do is get to bed tonight without hurting yourself, without hurting anybody else, without, and then just trying to make it all a little bit better for you and the people around you and you'll be all right. And that's it. That's it. And then that, like, that's, that's really it. It's those three things. And then you're done. You're perfect. You've done it. Let yourself off the hook. And I think that's a wonderful way to think about how to just get through it one day at a time. Just finishing off, you're a dad. You've got your beautiful stepdaughter, Georgia, and little Wolfie. How has being a dad changed you and changed the way you think about yourself? Um, Oh, it was really interesting. And uh, I would, you know, say this to anyone who's, you know, dating a woman with kids. I was quite surprised that it, this little girl who was 10 when I met her, it didn't take long much of knowing her. A couple of weeks, maybe a few a few months. And from one day to the next, she was my girlfriend's kid. And then the next day she was like, I would jump in front of a bus if it meant saving your life. That was it. Like that flicked, the switch flicked inside my head. And that was it. The That incredible willingness to sacrifice your own life for the cause of this. I just realized, oh shit, it's no longer about me. It's about this kid. Everything's got to be poured into this kid, this beautiful girl. That's it. Everything, nothing else matters. And for someone as selfish and self-centered as me, that was a really big deal. <laughs> you might expect that. It's like, wow, that's, well, there you go. And, and doubly so when Wolf, once Wolfie arrived, when Wolfie arrived about five or six years later, I love the name too. I just think it's the most beautiful name. <laughs> He's a nice guy. He's really sweet. He's a really sweet, generous kid. Um, and all it did was just, you know, top that up and just made it even more. Like, like it really, it really has nothing to do with me. None of it. None of it. It's no, it's all about these two. And, you know, if I and but then you know, then you kind of look at the way you, you you live life and what's the best thing I can do for these kids is to try as hard as I can to have the best possible relationship of origin for them to to witness every day with their mum. Okay. That's the best thing I can do. And that also benefits me, but it's ultimately to benefit them. All right. What's the best thing I can do for them? Try to be and do the best job I can and be as successful as I can in my career so that I can provide for them and give them the best possible chance uh, in life. And that uh, benefits me a bit, but it's it's all for them. Like if once you reframe these things, we're like, just how can we do it for them? And that's, you know, then once you get yourself out of the way, if you put the kids first, it's it, it turns out, everything turns out okay. I've, you know, because that's all you can do really. Of course it is. And I think just finally back to your book where you talk about you used to think that if you got on a big enough TV show that you'd feel okay, that then that would sort everything. But you get to a point, don't you, in your life where it doesn't really matter, that stuff. It's these no. bigger things of love, of family, of relationships that endure. I was trying to tell 
um, someone the other day, they were talking about, oh, my baby timeline is this and da-da-da. And, you know, my boyfriend's 34 and he wants he wants kids within the next three years. I'm like, what? Do the sums. And I was just, I was just saying to this person, like, look, I've, I've stood on the sh- I've stood on the beach in Africa and looked at Spain. I've I've walked up the Eiffel Tower. I've, you know, I've I've wept at the Western Wall. I've done all these things. None of those things are as good as playing Plato with a toddler. None of them at all. Don't even come close to what it's like to watching your baby figure out how to ride a balance bike. Doesn't even hold a candle to it, you know. And it's the most extraordinary joy, you know. There's a, there's a th- that is an amazing thing, and and also you know the idea of the the accumulation of stuff has been sold to us as this is how happiness occurs. Bigger TV equals happiness. No, it's just the bigger TV with not much to watch until you see The Bachelor Wednesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> uh, and the Mars Singer. Mars Singer. Of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's the same. It's like, oh, life's not going to be good until I get that brand new phone. You know what? It's the same phone you're just watching TikTok on when you could be playing with your kids. Uh, <laughs> I'm guilty of that. <laughs> it's just seriously, the acquisition of stuff, as it's we've kind of been lied to. The stuff doesn't make you happy. It's the people that make you happy. So you'd be amazed at how just go, just source. You know, to use a, a, a drug or alcohol reference, go find yourself a, a, a more a more reliable dealer for the dopamine and the serotonin in you, that you're seeking, all right? And the best dealer you're going to get is another human being, all right? You're going to get little squirts from your phone um, or a little jolt when you click buy or when something arrives in the post, but that won't be there in an hour. Let's be honest. You'll unbox it and go, oh, great, now I've got a new thing, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> A smile on your lover's face when you know you say, "Hey, balcony, hey." <laughs> oh, Osha, thank you for just sharing so much, being so open, and you've helped me. And I know you are helping so many other people by doing what you do. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me on the show, Jess. Isn't Osha extraordinary? He's so open, honest, and self-aware. And I know we talked about heavy stuff, and I don't want anyone to feel alone after such a conversation. Please, if Osha's story brought up issues for you, call Lifeline on 131114. His memoir, Back After the Break, is such an amazing book. I read it over two nights. He writes in an unflinching way about the damage addiction did to his life and how he's come through to carve a happier life for himself and his family. Next week, I speak to the wondrous Julia Morris. Forget the outdated ideas that as women, we disappear with age. Julia simply gets better. I'm looking inside and working out why. Why do I need that validation? Why do I not believe that what I've got to give is enough? And I wonder if that's going to be a lifetime of work. You know, why do I need that person to think I'm smart? Why do I need that person to think I'm thin? Why do I need that person to think I'm funny? Like, yeah, so that's, uh, that is definitely a work in progress. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Audio producer, Chris Marsh. Executive producer, Nick McClure. 
Supervising Producer, Sam Cavanaugh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.